Well, good morning. Peace be with you. It's good to be with you. I recently read a book by a woman named Angela Duckworth, and Angela is a professor of psychology at the University of Pennsylvania. And for the last 15 years, she's been doing research on all kinds of people who are in all kinds of different hard and challenging and difficult settings. So she's done it with kids, she's done it with college students, and she's done it with adults, trying to figure out, the goal of her research was to try to find a way to predict who's gonna be successful in challenging, hard situations, and who's gonna fail. Is there a way that you can predict it? And so she went to West Point, uh, and at West Point, every year, the, the first years there, I don't know if they're called freshman cadets, uh, every year, 20% of them or so drop out. And so she went to see if she could predict which 20% would drop out and which 80% would stay. She went to the National Spelling Bee, uh, which is very different than West Point, and she tried to predict which children would advance in the competition, which ones would get knocked out early. She went to rookie teachers who are working in tough and challenging school districts. She tried to predict who's going to make it through the year, and not only that, who will make it five years. And so after years of research, she found one characteristic that emerged as the most significant predictor of success. And this characteristic, it wasn't natural ability, wasn't talent, it wasn't good looks, thank God, right? It wasn't uh, your IQ, it wasn't your social intelligence. The one the one characteristic which was the most accurate predictor of success was what she calls grit, or we could call it resiliency. She defines grit as a passion and perseverance, and that this passion and perseverance, it comes together, and it enables people to keep going when other people would give up. It enables people to, to hit obstacles and yet not give up. And as I was reading the book, I found it interesting, but I wasn't all that surprised by it because we know the power of grit. Because I've talked to a lot of you who've been very successful. And so many of you, what you've said is, I just worked really hard for a long time. That's about all I had going for me. This is why we love underdog stories, right? We, we're much more likely to cheer for the walk-on than the all-American. This is why if you are a teacher or a parent, and your kid gets a B on something they really labored over, you're happier than if they get an A on something that they breeze through. Like we all know the power of grit. We know it's essential for school. It's essential for being successful in a profession, but it's also success or essential for our success in life and in the Christian life. You know, for the Christian, we could actually just almost take her definition, but I would define for the Christian grit as the ability to persevere and to remain faithful to God regardless of what you go through and regardless of what life throws at you. And I totally agree with her that your ability to endure hardships, to press on, to keep going is so much more important than your intelligence or your giftedness. Now, in the church, this is hard because in the church, we oftentimes, we lift people up who are really gifted. 
And we say, gosh, if I could be like that person. And giftings, they're great. They're gifts from God. But what's so much more important than gifts is grit. It's endurance. It's perseverance. And we, we're jumping back into the book of Acts this week. And we're going to be in Acts chapter 13 and 14. This is, in these two chapters, Paul records for us, or Luke records for us, Paul's first missionary journey. And these two chapters, there's so much that we could talk about, and we're going to get to, to some of the other themes in these chapters later. But what stuck out to me as I was praying and reading through this text over the last couple of weeks was the perseverance, the grit that Paul demonstrated. That he, while he experienced a ton of success, he also experienced a ton of opposition. And what, imp- what was so impressed upon me is how he just kept going. And I look at my life and I look at our lives and I wonder when hardships hit, do we have what it takes inside? Do we have the, the spiritual resources? Do we have the faith, the endurance to keep going? And so what I want to do this morning is we're going to look at these two chapters, but we're only going to read together just four verses. There's four verses in chapter 14 that kind of give us a window into what I'm trying to talk about here. And so I would ask for all who are able, if you could stand with me for the reading of God's word, as we look at Acts 14, verses 19 through 22. To set the scene, Paul, he's just healed someone. We're going to talk about it and preached a sermon. <clears throat> People are trying to worship him. They're, they're in so much in love with him. Uh, but the enemies that Paul has been accumulating throughout this journey, they all arrive at this point. And Luke tells us that some Jews came from Antioch and Iconium and won the crowd over. They stoned Paul and dragged him outside the city, thinking he was dead. But after the disciples had gathered around him, he got up and went back into the city. The next day, he and Barnabas left for Derby. They preached the good news in that city and won a large number of disciples. Then they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, strengthening the disciples and encouraging them to remain true to the faith. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God, he said. This is the word of the Lord. Will you pray with me? Father, I pray as we come to your word, we know that your spirit is at work in our midst. You promise us that. And I pray that your spirit would give us boldness, would bring conviction in our life where our love for the lost and for the cold is, for the world has grown cold. That you would give us eyes to see the world as you see it and hearts that long after the same things that you long after. So Lord, we ask these things. We thank you so much for the opportunity to be together. I pray that my words would glorify you. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. It's four verses and it's unbelievable. Paul gets stoned to the point of death. People are picking up rocks and throwing them at him. They drag him outside of the city because they think he's dead. And so they want to get rid of the body before some Roman official comes to the city and asks, why is this guy laying dead here? So they drag him out into a field. The disciples gather around him. And then Paul gets up. Not only does he get up, 
he walks back into the city where the people that had just stoned him were waiting. I don't know about you, but I read that and I think, would I be able to do that? <laughs> I would like to think I would, but would I be able to do that? Would I have that kind of courage, that kind of perseverance, that kind of grit? And so what we're going to do is, in trying to answer that question, where did Paul find the power for this? We're going to look at different snapshots from all of chapter 13 and 14. And there's three things <clears throat> in particular in these chapters that I want to look at that that Luke highlights for us that I think are essential for us if we want to grow in and understand this idea of grit. And the first thing is that you need to embrace your calling. Like the first step to being this kind of person is you have to embrace the calling God has given you in your life. The last time we saw Paul back in the fall, he and Barnabas, they were teaching and preaching at the first church of Antioch, which was literally the first church of Antioch, the first church ever planted there. And they were experiencing tremendous success. They were seeing tons of people come to faith. People were celebrating. And so they spent a whole year there. And it was really flourishing. They had this very successful and kind of killer leadership team. But Luke tells us at the beginning of chapter 13 that one day while the leadership team of the church of Antioch, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them out. And so Paul, he actually, you can read it and more about the Antioch church in chapter 11, but he had a sweet gig. I mean, he's teaching day in and day out alongside of Barnabas. It had to be an amazing church, right? Who's preaching this week? I think Paul is. Ah, love it when Barnabas is there, right? Like this would be unbelievable. They're growing. They're probably thinking capital campaign. And then the Lord shows up. The Lord shows up and he says, set apart for me Barnabas and Paul. I've got some work for them. And so they pray and they respond in obedience. And they embark upon this journey that will cover more than 1,200 miles. And to help you understand the scope of this mission, I have, I'm not very tech savvy, but I have some maps to kind of help you wrap your mind around it. They started down there where the, the red circle is in Antioch. That's where they began. From there, they sailed to Cyprus. Cyprus was Barnabas's hometown. It's always fun to go back to your hometown after you meet Jesus because you're a different person. It opens up some new doors and opportunities. From Cyprus, they went up to Pisidian Antioch, which is obviously a different Antioch that's in the region of Galatia. And then from Antioch, they went to Iconium, Lystra, and Derby. All of those churches that Paul's gonna plant on this journey, they're in a region known as Galatia, and Paul would later write a book to those churches called the Book of Galatians. And so 1,200 miles, Paul goes throughout this journey. You can read the chapters. You'll see that he is preaching the gospel with passion, with a fierceness. He's facing opposition, and he is seeing a ton of fruit. Now, one of the challenges for us, I don't know if it's just a challenge for me or if it's a challenge for, for all of us, I think it's probably all of us, is that when we read Acts, we recognize, we have to recognize that there's not a one-to-one -one correlation between Paul's life and our life. God didn't strike most of us blind to lead us uh, to faith, 
We didn't have the same experiences Paul had. Paul, you know, he plants dozens of churches and leads thousands of people to faith. I mean, he's an apostolic all-star. And most of us here, we're not called to plant churches. Most of us here, most of you here, you're not called to be pastors or to preach in front of large groups of people. Most of us here, we're just trying to do our jobs, to be successful, to manage our finances, and to love our families. Amen? We're just trying, we're just trying to get through life. And so what we can easily do when we read passages like this, we can easily read about Paul's work and write them off, sort of. Like, that is fascinating. It's an important part of our history. I don't have any idea what that would have to do with me because that just doesn't really apply to me. And there, there is a sense in which that's true. Like, God had a very specific call for Paul. But in another sense, in a deeper sense, that's flat out not true. See, Christianity is, Jesus has come to rescue us from the dominion of darkness, the dominion of sin, and to deliver us into the kingdom, the family, through God's grace. So he takes us out of darkness into light. He takes us out of sin into grace. But he also takes us out of being self-centered, me-centered, and me-focused, and he gives us a new mission in life. And the new mission in life is to join him on the mission that he began a long time ago. And this calling to join him on his mission, it is not optional. It's very, very clear in the Bible that if you believe in Jesus, you have to follow him on his mission. The greatest example of the mission of Jesus or the clearest picture of it is the Great Commission, which is in Matthew 28. And I know there are some people that debate, does the Great Commission really apply to all of us or does it just apply to disciples? Some people who read it and they think, I don't think I want to do that. I think that was just, you know, for the guys who hung out with Jesus all the time. Well, the answer to that question, does it apply to everyone or does it just apply to the disciples? The answer to that's found in the text. Jesus says, Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. You see it? He doesn't say teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you except this command to go make disciples. You tell them don't do that one. That one's special and it's reserved only for my precious disciples and apostles. No, he says, all of you go. Paul, 2 Corinthians 5, says, we are ambassadors for Christ. Paul tells Timothy, I want you to go and I want you to find men, raise them up, men who are able to teach. In Acts 8, when the apostles, they leave because there's persecution, you know what? The gospel still goes forward. You know why? Because when the preachers left, the people started preaching. And yet, so often, in the American church, there's this mindset that we should leave the heavy lifting for the professionals. Like we'll leave that to the pastors. We'll leave that to the missionaries. And I think the early church wouldn't know what to do with that kind of mindset. That God would save us, but not send us. Like Paul, we've all been called to make disciples. Like Paul, we've all been given the same spirit who empowers us. 
Now, the specifics of the call and how it's going to play out in our lives, it's going to look very different. But the essence remains the same. What's the essence? Well, think about what Jesus did during his three years uh, of earthly ministry. What direction did Jesus go? He went to sick people, right? He found people who were sick, who were diseased, and he came to them and he healed them. He went to sinful people, right? One of the greatest charges that was thrown at Jesus was, you are a friend of sinners. You are hanging out with just the worst kinds of people. They're addicts and they're alcoholics and they smell bad and they're filthy and they voted this way, right? And how dare you? And he went to these people with an intentionality. He shared his life with them and he shared the gospel with them. Jesus, he went to those who were on the outside, to those who were far from God. And so let me ask you, if you are a disciple of Jesus, where do you think he will call you to go? Where do you think he'll call you to go? Unfortunately, for a lot of us, I think we want him to call us to go someplace easy, someplace comfortable, but Jesus is putting the call on all of us, go make disciples. And how do you go and make disciples? You gotta go to people who are far from God. And you gotta go share your life with them. And this, this sharing your life with them, sharing the gospel with them, it's not an extracurricular activity in the Christian life. It's a central part of our calling. And I say all of this because you are never gonna find the boldness to step out in faith, let alone the grit to stick it out, unless you know you've been called by the Lord of the universe. I mean, Paul, how can Paul do all the things he's doing? Because he knows that God holds it all together. He knows that not a hair is gonna fall from his head, not a bird's gonna fall from the sky, nothing's going to touch him that doesn't first pass through God's hand. He knows all of that, and he knows that that God said, hey, you, you're gonna go for me. And it creates an enormous amount of confidence and passion, and grit. And so I, I want to ask you, you know, I said we're all called, the details might look different. I don't think most of us here need to think about cities or countries that we need to reach for Christ. If you are, I love it. We love it when people think like that. But maybe just three people. Like right now, could you write down three people that you are praying for? Three people who are far from God that you're praying for, that you're seeking to befriend, and that you're hopeful to share the gospel with. Can you name three? You know, for some of us here today, you feel disconnected from God. The songs we sing, they just don't land with you. The word, it doesn't really stir you. The gospel in God's word, it hasn't brought you to tears in a long time. Like you haven't wept over the fact that, yes, I was a sinner and God gave his son for me. That just, it's, you believe it, but it's kind of abstract. And I just want to ask you, would you be willing to consider that maybe 
that sense of disconnect that you're feeling from God exists because you're trying to walk with Jesus, but you don't want to go where he's going. Maybe the sense of disconnect comes because you want to walk with him, but then he's going to those people. You're like, I don't think I want to go to those people. Don't hear me wrong. I'm not saying that if you don't step into the mission that all of a sudden you're gonna jeopardize your salvation. We're saved by grace, not by works. Your eternal salvation is secure by what Jesus did on the cross. But your experience of God on this earth will be affected if you try to walk with Jesus without going where he's going. So number one, you have to embrace your calling. And some of you are thinking, yeah, I tried to do that once and it was really hard. I remember the last time I tried to do evangelism. That was awful. Others of you are like, that just sounds horrible to me. It sounds terrifying. It sounds scary. What would people think? What pe might people say? Well, it leads to my second point. Not only do you have to embrace your calling, you also have to expect opposition. You got to expect it. If you read chapters 13 and 14, you survey them you will see that in the midst of the fruitfulness, Paul and Barnabas experienced a ton of opposition. You know, when they're at Cyprus, there's this magician sorcerer who stands opposed to them. God blinds the guy or as, as a form of judgment, but this guy's coming after them. They leave Cyprus and then, and then they go to Pisidian Antioch. And while they're in Pisidian Antioch, uh, they have all of this fruitfulness in ministry. They're preaching, and after their first week of preaching, Luke tells us that the whole city comes out, which had to be an amazing sight for Paul. The entire city's coming out to hear him preach. Well, the religious leaders in the city got pretty angry, started calling them sheep stealers, right? How dare you take people from our churches and our, our pews? And so what they did, Luke tells us, in verse 50, the Jews incited the God-fearing women of high standing and the leading men of the city. They stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them from their region. So Paul and Barnabas are there. They're having this really fruitful ministry and the power brokers show up and say, get out. We don't want your kind around here. We don't want you preaching around here anymore. And I love it. Luke tells us, that they took Jesus' words literally and they shook the dust off their feet and then they walked away. From there, they went to Iconium. Some of the same stuff happens. And then they go to Lystra. And in Lystra, Paul heals this man who had been unable to walk since birth. And the people in Lystra, when they see this, we're told in verse 11 of chapter 14, when the crowd saw what Paul had done, this healing, they shouted in the Lycaonian language, the gods have come down to us in human form. And so here, the people start worshiping Paul and Barnabas. They call Barnabas Zeus, and they call Paul Hermes. Both were Greek gods. And when Paul and Barnabas see this, Luke tells us that they tore their clothes and they rushed out into the crowd shouting, men, why are you doing this? We too are only men, humans like you. We are bringing you good news, telling you to turn from these worthless things to the living God. Paul preaches a mini sermon, but even still he was having trouble keeping them from sacrificing animals to him. And it was in that moment 
when all of the enemies that they had accumulated throughout all the cities they visited, that was the moment in which they struck. The crowd wanted to worship Paul, and Paul kept saying no, and they saw, well, you know, this spurned crowd, they might make a great mob. And so the crowd turns on Paul. They pick up stones, and they hurl them at him to the brink of death. Over and over and over again, opposition. And one of the things I love about the Bible is it doesn't sugarcoat things. It's not like Jesus didn't warn us. It's not like Paul hasn't written about it. It says if you're going to follow, you're going to suffer. You're going to be opposed. Now, we're, we're not going to, I don't think, Lord willing, we're not going to face the kind of persecution that Paul and the other apostles faced. We're not going to be flogged, beaten, have rocks thrown at us but we will be marginalized. And we might lose the promotion or we might not get invited to that social function or we might get cut out of some circles. And Paul's saying, expect it. Scripture says, expect it. If you're never experiencing opposition, maybe you're not being courageous enough. We accept Opposition, expect opposition from the outside, but there's also a kind of opposition that comes on the inside. And in many ways, this is much harder. You know, there's this verse that's so easy to, to read past in verse chapter 13. It's verse 13. We're told that Paul and his companions sailed from Perga to Pamphylia, where John left them to return to Jerusalem. Now, this John, it's John Mark. He wrote the Gospel of Mark. He's kind of a big deal. Uh, he was a traveling companion of Paul and Barnabas. And for whatever reason, we're not told, he had said he was gonna go on this journey with them. He got halfway there, and then he said, you know what, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go back to Jerusalem. Maybe he got homesick, maybe he got tired, maybe he just got annoyed with Barnabas's snoring. We don't know what happened. What we do know is he left. And him leaving, it might not seem like all that big of a deal, but what happened here in this moment, it did real violence to Paul and Barnabas's friendship. In Acts 15, Paul and Barnabas are getting ready to go on another trip, and Barnabas says, hey, we should bring John Mark along. And Paul said, are you kidding me? He deserted us. He bailed on us. Paul said, remember, we all put our hands in, and we said, all for one, one for all, and then I looked this way, looked back, and he was gone. No, we're not bringing him. Paul and Barnabas, they split ways. They go in different directions. Paul, we don't know all the details, but Paul certainly, he felt betrayed and abandoned. And I would say when we want to live and step into Jesus' call and Jesus' mission, sometimes we're gonna have not just outsiders, betray us, abandon us, oppose us. It's going to be insiders as well. And I mean, I see this all the time in the church. A wife starts to press into God's word, starts to press into community, and the husband says, whoa, 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 let's not take this too seriously. Before you know it, she ends up coming to church by herself. Teenagers, if you're in school and you take the call of Jesus seriously, that will cost you something and the social hierarchy of your school. Like I know, I know, 
what that's like. You'll be mocked, you'll be written off, and you'll have a whole lot of people that you thought were your friend back away from you. Others of you in this room, it's family, right? It's always family. Uh, parents are serious about their faith. Their kids are almost condescending in the way they talk to them. Or kids who are serious about their faith and the parents aren't Christians. And the parents look down on them and almost get mad about their faith. We all have experiences like that. If we're walking with Jesus, we're going to have experiences like that. And we have to expect it. You know, I love it. Peter says, do not be surprised at the fiery trials. Don't be taken off guard. Like if you give your life to Jesus, you will be opposed. You have to expect it. And this is just, it's so hard for us. It's so hard for us because so many of us, we've bought into this lie that if we obey God, things will always go well for us. We've bought into this lie that God would never want us to do something unpleasant or uncomfortable. For so many of us, we obey when we see what the benefit of obedience looks like, which of course, that's not obedience, that's agreement. And so we do that and we're, we're confident in our mind, God wouldn't want me to do anything painful. He wouldn't want me to do anything that, that might get me hurt or might cost me something. It's this weird Americanized version of Christianity that's really more like, like some kind of karma. But if you obey God, he will make your life easier. If you obey Jesus, you believe Jesus, you have enough faith in Jesus, your bank account will be fat, your spouse will be thin, your kids will make honor roll, and everyone will love you. And it's just not true. It's just not helpful. Jesus said, if the world hates you, remember they hated me first. And I think there needs to be a shift for a lot of us in how we think. We need to, I'm not saying go looking for opposition, but we need to start expecting it. We need to prepare ourselves for it. And then lastly, the last thing we read is we need to endure the hardships. After Paul's stoning, we're told that you know, after he got up, stabilized himself, we're told that he actually went and retraced his steps and revisited all the churches that he just visited. In verse 21, in part of 22, in chapter 14, we're told they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch strengthening the disciples and encouraging them to remain true to the faith. Most certainly what happened here is word began to spread about the stoning and Christians started to be shaken. Like this is Paul. I mean, he's, he's our guy, he's our representative and he just got stoned. And so Paul goes to these places because he knows that people are afraid, they're having second thoughts, they're considering on bailing and he strengthens them and encourages them. And he encourages them the way Paul would encourage someone. He says, hey, don't worry. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. How do you like that? He doesn't say it was a one-off. I'm sure it was just a big misunderstanding. This is an anomaly. Paul says, oh yeah, that? Yeah, we need to get used to it. We must go through many hardships to enter 
the kingdom of God. Is there any verse in the New Testament that's out there right now that more offends the mind of so many American Christians? We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. Well, what's Paul mean by that? Well, I can tell you what he doesn't mean. He doesn't mean that if we want to go to heaven, we have to suffer, or that through our suffering, we earn our way into heaven. We're saved by grace, not by our works. I think what Paul means here is that without hardships, we'll never really grow into Christ-likeness. And if you survey the pages of the New Testament, one of the things you'll see over and over again is that God's great desire for our lives is to conform us, to shape us into the image of his son, to give us the character and integrity and courage and grit of his son. How does that happen? Like, how do we get there? I'm guessing if I were to poll you and said, how many of you would like to become more like Jesus, be formed more to his image? I'm guessing that an overwhelming majority of you here would say, yeah, I think that would be good. I'd want that. Well, how does it happen? Where do we learn things like dependence, utter dependence on the Father? Where do we learn things like the importance of prayer? Where do we learn humility or empathy or patience or gentleness? Where do we learn those things? We don't really learn them when life's going well because when life's going well, we don't spend enough time with God to learn those things. No, it's the hardships. It's the suffering. You see, hardships, they have the power to drive us right in, sometimes rather forcefully and violently. They have the power to drive us right into the kingdom of God because suffering and hardships make us more like Jesus. But it doesn't happen automatically. If you've ever been through intense suffering, if, you ever, if you've ever walked with someone through intense suffering, you know suffering isn't something you really recover from. As much as it is, it's something you're changed by. Intense suffering, you don't like heal from it back to who you were. You come out of it a different person. It deepens you, but it can deepen you in different ways. Suffering can make you deepen empathy and wisdom and resiliency, but it can also, it also has the power to make you deepen bitterness, resentment, and cynicism. I mean, we all know people who went through intense suffering and they came out of it colder, more jaded, and more cynical. But I hope you know people who went through intense suffering and came out of it wiser and warmer. Well, what's the difference? Well, one person viewed their suffering as a cruel joke of a random universe or a vengeful God. The other received it as a necessary hardship. They received it as discipline that God and his wisdom is bringing into their life to mold them a little more into the image of his son. It's interesting, both James and Paul tell us that we should rejoice in our sufferings, both of them. And they actually write the same things. They say rejoice in your sufferings. Why? Because suffering produces perseverance. Suffering produces grit, 
And well, what, what comes out of perseverance and grit? Maturity, character, Christ-likeness. And so I know when we talk about mission, there are a lot of you that think, I can never do that. You can do it. You've been called. There are others of you that think, I don't want to do that. That sounds really hard. It might be awkward. Don't you see? The awkwardness maybe is exactly what you need. Like this is the wisdom of God, is it not? In sending us, us, look at us. He sends us. In sending us on the mission of God, not only does he win more people to faith in his son, at the same time, he's conforming us more to the image of his son. And this requires, it just requires for us to rethink our hardships. Instead of asking why, we need to learn to ask, Lord, what are you teaching me? Because Jesus didn't come to make life easy. He came to make us great. He came to make us like him. And he will not stop at anything less. And so here's what I want to leave you with. Some of you here, you're not Christians. I hope as we've looked at the life of Paul, you got maybe a more accurate understanding of what Christianity is than what you might see in popular culture. Others of you, you're here, you're hearing this, and you're like, I've never stepped out in faith. I've never done anything like that. And I want to encourage you. It's not too late. Step out. Embrace the call. Expect the opposition. Trust that God, no matter how awkward or hard it might be, God is going to do something great in your life through it. Others of you here, you're faithful in this stuff. If that's you, I want to encourage you to press on, to keep going. You know, I love it in Galatians 6, 9, Paul says, don't grow weary in doing good. Why would Paul write that unless there was a temptation to grow weary in doing good? And so some of you, you are a little weary, and I just want to encourage you, keep it up. Don't grow weary. Lastly, there are some of you, you stepped out in faith and it was really hard. You didn't have rocks thrown at you, but you did, got knocked, you did get knocked down and you never got back up. And you've been eking by for so long, you can't remember the last time that you, saw, you sought to love or reach someone who was far from Jesus. My encouragement to you, and I say this in love, you can get up. Like you don't have to keep laying on the ground. I want to encourage you to get up. The mission needs you. And you need the mission. Because God is at work and he is going to restore all things. And on that day, we're going to look at our life, how much of it was aligned with that and how much of it was just pointed in a totally opposite direction. And I pray that we might be found faithful. And it's as we come to the Lord's table, we remember that. We remember that the day is coming where we're going to sit down and share a meal with him. And the reason we get to share a meal with him is because, not because we were obedient enough, not because we got all this stuff right. The reason we share a meal with him is because Jesus Christ willingly had his body broken and his blood shed for us. And so when we come to the table, this is a chance for us. We can confess sin. 
We can confess the different ways we've disobeyed God. But it's also a time where we can relish in the fact that we are loved by God, but we're sent by him. And the food, the bread, the wine, they're fuel for us to leave here and to serve him. More faithfulness, more of a, a wholeheartedness. And so if you're here and you're a Christian, I encourage you to eat and to drink. Uh, the way we do communion here, you tear a piece of bread off and you dip it in the wine. Let me pray.